Matthew chapter 1, let's begin reading at verse 18 together, shall we? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear not what the preacher is going to say, but what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I pray that you give me clarity of thought and speech. But Lord, I pray most that your Holy Spirit will do his work in our lives today. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask that you will draw them to a place of repentance so that not one of them will be lost. I pray, O oh Lord, that this Christmas season will be the time in which they surrender their heart to you. And I pray these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. During this season of Advent, when we are preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ at Christmas, one of the things we need to remember is that the coming of Jesus not only impacted the world that existed at that time, but his coming continues to impact our lives and our world today. His coming wasn't just for a world under the dominion of the Roman Empire, but his coming is for all time. His coming wasn't just for one race of people living in a certain geographical location in the Middle East, but his coming is for all people in all places of the earth. Our text says that the angel appeared to Joseph and told him they were to name this baby Jesus. This is probably the most common name by which he is known, and yet it is often the least understood. Jesus is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. The name means Jehovah saves. Jesus is not only the name used to identify this child, but it also describes and defines his mission and his purpose in coming. Now, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that people in the church seem to develop a vocabulary that people in the general populace never use and most of them don't understand. You know, we use words that are perfectly wonderful words, but we often use them without being fully aware of what they really mean. For example, we talk about justification and sanctification and regeneration. We talk about being born again and washed in the blood, 
and being crucified with Christ. And while those expressions and those words are valid to the uninitiated, they are often confusing. There's another word we use a lot, and it's the word I want to focus on today as we look at this name of Jesus. The word is salvation. In the church, we ask people, are you saved? And when they hear it, they want to know, saved from what? Sometimes we find ourselves getting frustrated trying to explain what is meant by salvation, especially in this world where the bulk of the population is biblically illiterate. Even in the Bible, the words salvation and saved are used in a wide variety of ways. For example, in Acts Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were thrown into the Philippian jail and at midnight began to sing songs of praise unto the Lord, the Bible says an earthquake struck, the doors of the prison were opened, the chains were loosed. You remember the story, how the jailer came running in and shouted at Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm pretty sure I know what Paul was talking about when he answered the jailer because of the way he responded, but I wonder just exactly what was in the jailer's mind. You see, the law said that if a prisoner escaped, then the jailer was responsible, would have to take any penalty and judgment that was coming to the one incarcerated. When there was the threat of all these prisoners escaping, I wonder if that jailer had his eternal destination and the ultimate salvation of his soul in mind or if he was merely concerned in that moment about the preservation of his life. In the Gospels, we are told of a woman who came to Jesus with what is called an issue of blood. You remember the story of how she pressed through the crowd, she touched the hem of Jesus' robe, and when it was discovered who touched him, Jesus said to her, Woman, your faith has saved you. What motivated her to touch Jesus had nothing to do with the eternal destiny of her soul, but she was trying to be cured from disease. There are all kinds of ways in which we talk about being saved. When an army goes to war against impossible odds, but at the last minute, when it looks like defeat is certain, something happens that enables them to win the battle, they are said to be saved. When a boxer is in the ring and has just been knocked down and the referee is counting and he gets to six, then seven, then eight, and the bell rings, the boxer has been saved by the bell. There are many senses in which we use the word saved. In the Bible, not only is the word saved used in many senses, but the verb to save is also used in many tenses. In fact, the verb to save is used in the New Testament in every possible sense and in every possible tense of the Greek language. It is used in the ultimate past tense, and we are told that we were saved. That is, even before time began, in the hidden wisdom of God, we were saved. From the foundation of the world, God had your salvation in mind before the first man was ever formed from the dust of the ground. Before you were ever a gleam in your daddy's eye, God had a plan and a provision in place for your eternal salvation. The verb to save is used in the imperfect tense, which says that we were being saved. Salvation is something he's been working at since the beginning of history. What that means is that your salvation was being prepared through the call of Abraham, through the life of Jacob, through the events of the Exodus, through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. 
the word is used in the present tense. We are saved. The moment you surrender control of your life to Jesus and put your trust in him alone, at that moment, the righteousness of the sinless son of God is imputed to your account and you are saved. The word is used in the progressive present tense. We are being saved. This lets us know that salvation is not this once for all time thing. But your salvation begins when you have faith and you surrender your life to Jesus. And then as you grow in grace and maturity and in living your life in obedience to his will and his plan, that process is described as a process of salvation. And finally, the word is used in the future tense, when we shall be saved. Ultimately and finally and forever, we shall be saved. We are saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved as we look forward to our glorification with Jesus and the final consummation of our salvation. And when you look at all those senses and tenses, it's easy to see how this idea of salvation can get a little confusing. The word salvation, by definition, means being rescued or delivered from some calamity, some catastrophe. Uh, There is a sense in which you can be saved from a bad attacking dog. There is a sense in which you can be saved from a bully's threats. You can be saved from a bad relationship. You can be saved from a dreadful storm. But there is one calamity... One catastrophe so utterly grim that rescue from it becomes the zenith of the biblical doctrine of salvation. The Bible sets forth one thing as the ultimate calamity from which each and every person on this planet needs to be saved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us what this is when the Apostle Paul writes, To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, watch this, here it is, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here we see the great predicament of the society. We are told about this predicament in John 3.36. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 1.18 when he wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is the meaning of, of Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Perhaps the greatest point of unbelief in our society is an unbelief in the wrath of God and in the certain promise of judgment for the human race. You know, in our day, we've managed to convince ourselves that all that matters is that you are a good person. Right? Eternal punishment is only going to be visited upon the really, really, really bad people, you know. All those people out there. So just try to stay out of any serious trouble and you'll be fine. 
there are too many who don't feel any need whatsoever for Jesus. They look upon those who have surrendered to follow him with a certain mild amusement. And they say things like, well, you know, if it makes you feel better to believe in Jesus, that's fine for you, but I don't really feel the need. It's kind of like saying you don't feel the need for a fireman because your house isn't on fire. I mean, who needs a fireman when there's no fire? Who needs a savior when there's no clear and present threat of judgment? People today simply don't believe there will be a day of judgment. And let me just add that I'm not sure many in the church believe it either. Because if the church really believed it, the energy of our evangelism would increase a hundredfold. You know, in the Old Testament, the foundational, fundamental difference between the true prophet and the false prophet was that the true prophet proclaimed the day of the Lord as a day of consuming wrath. People didn't want to hear that, so the false prophet got rich, promising the people that the day of the Lord was a day of brightness and light and joy, and there's nothing to worry about. That sounds an awful lot like what we hear today, doesn't it? We're told everything's going to be all right, so don't worry. We're, we're told the church is going to slowly but surely possess the land, and we will finally arrive at a time when the kings and the presidents and the judges and the people in positions of authority, they're all going to be promoting Christian values. If we'll just vote right, we'll get everybody in the right place, and our world will finally know peace and true prosperity. We are told that everybody's going to get in on the blessing, and prosperity will flow. Somehow that message doesn't line up with the message of the Bible. The truth is, God does love. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But that plan is not going to look so good on the day of judgment if you don't repent. The message of the Bible is there is coming an awesome, terrible day of the Lord in which the world is going to be judged. The message of the Bible is that there is a day coming in which the wrath of God and the fury of a holy, righteous God is going to be poured out over the earth. That was the message of Isaiah. That was the message of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of Daniel, of Micah, of every true prophet of God. Listen, the prophet Amos came to the people and he said, you celebrate the day of the Lord. Don't you realize that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness? There is no light in it, for it is the day when God will speak in wrath, and his anger will consume the planet, and his judgment will go forth, and his violence will be seen in the streets. That's the message that rings out loud and clear from the book of the Revelation as the Spirit speaks to the church and says, unless you repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. When you look into the book of the Revelation that talks so dramatically about the end of time, what you see is the judgment and the wrath of a holy God that has been horribly offended by sin. That's the message of the seals that are open. That's the message of the trumpets that are sounded. That's the message of the bowls that are poured out. It's the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day of wrath over all the earth. If you want to know about the day of the Lord, listen to the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He said, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of the inhabitants of the earth. 
This is the predicament of the society. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of trouble. It's a day of distress, a day of destruction, a day of desolation and darkness. The predicament of the society is that it is subject to God's wrath. In light of that, I need to tell you about the peril of the sinner. The peril of the sinner is that no matter how much you desire it and no matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. In the final analysis, your greatest need is not to be saved from dreaded disease or from a global pandemic. Your greatest need is not to be saved from financial ruin or from natural disasters or military defeats. The thing from which each and every person needs to be saved is God. It's so easy to forget that the wrath that is coming to this earth (laughs) is God's judgment upon the earth. It is God's fury. It is God's wrath. And you are not capable of saving yourself from God. No one has the resources or the power or the money or the merit to save himself. Why would God accept your good deeds as a means of salvation when he classifies your works in Isaiah 64 and 6 as filthy rags in his sight? Why would he accept your money when he already owns the wealth of the universe? Why would he accept your personal merits when his his evaluation in Romans 3 and 12 is that there is none that does good, not even one? Truth is, there is nothing you can do that will please God enough to enable you to be saved from the wrath that is to come. This is the peril of the sinner. Now, aren't you glad you came to church one week before Christmas Day? (laughs) Isn't this the hope and encouragement and comfort that everybody wanted to get? The predicament of the society is that God's wrath is coming. The peril of the sinner is that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. And that would be terrible news were it not for the provided solution. See, in the midst of our calamity, there is some good news. The glory of the gospel is that the one from whom you need to be saved is the very one who saves you. In the midst of your predicament and peril, God has provided a solution. His solution is Jesus. I told you at the beginning of this message that the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. That's the wonder of the angel's announcement to Joseph that they were to call his name Jesus. That's the power of the Christmas story. That's how this most wondrous old story continues to impact our modern world. What you need to remember in this Advent season is that the reason God sent Jesus to this world was not so you could buy presents, wrap them in pretty paper, and place them under a decorated tree. God didn't send Jesus so you could attend parties and drink eggnog and sing Christmas carols and send cards with pictures of angels with trumpets and wise men with gifts and a baby with a halo around his head lying in a manger. The reason God sent Jesus to the world was not so the stores could have a larger profit margin and people could dress up and throw parties where everybody has too much to eat and too much to drink and where we change the focus to a jolly old man with a white beard and a red suit that rides around in a sleigh pulled by flying reindeer. 
The reason God sent Jesus was told by the angel Gabriel to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The The reason God sent Jesus was proclaimed by the angelic host to the shepherds as they kept watch over their flocks at night in the Bethlehem fields when they sang in Luke 2 and 11, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The reason God sent Jesus is proclaimed by Jesus himself in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life see by sending Jesus God is saving you from himself through Jesus you are saved from the wrath to come that's the message of Christmas that's the blessing of Christmas that's the wonder and the joy and the majesty and the glory of Christmas That's what we celebrate. That's what we proclaim in this season of the year. That's why we rejoice. Unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I, I don't know how much attention you pay to what's happening in our world, but if you want to get people upset, just start talking about the name of Jesus. I've discovered people don't mind so much if you talk about God because they will interpret God however they want to interpret him or in some cases they will say her. People don't mind if you talk about God. They don't mind if you talk about spirituality or if you talk about religion. But talk about Jesus. That's when the hackles rise. That's when the objections are raised. That's when everybody gets on edge. Years ago, Charles Wyckoff wrote a song and titled it, What a Lovely Name. What an appropriate description of the name Jesus. Before I get out of here today, I want to tell you a little something about this lovely name of Jesus. First, I would tell you the name Jesus is an easy name. I was thinking about this this week. I'm glad Jesus wasn't given some of the names I read in the Old Testament. (laughs) Isaiah the prophet had a son named him Maharshalal Hashbaz. Aren't you glad Jesus wasn't given a name like that? A name that you stumble over every time you try to pronounce it. A name that nobody can remember. Imagine trying to compose a Christmas carol around that kind of name. (laughs) Mahashallah Hashbaz, Mahashallah Hashbaz, oh, what a wonderful child. (laughs) Mahashallah Hashbaz. Oh, come, let us adore him, Mahashallah Hashbaz. It, it just loses something, don't you think? Jesus is a universal name. It, it's an easy name to remember. It's an easy name to. It's an easy name to say. Just say his name with me, would you? Jesus. See how easy it is. Say it again. Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus. There's power in that name. There's healing in that name. There's deliverance in that name. There's help in that name. There's hope in that name. Jesus, when you're in trouble, just call his name. Jesus, it's an easy name. <laughs> I'll tell you something else about that name. It's an exalted name. That's why the writer says in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I tell you, it's an exalted name. He's high and lifted up. No other name like the name of Jesus. Angels bow before the name of Jesus. Demons tremble at the name of Jesus. It's an exalted name. I got to tell you one more thing about this name. It's an exclusive name. Listen, the only person who can rescue anybody from the wrath that is to come is God and his appointed Savior. That's the meaning of John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, when he declares that he is the door. Anybody who tries to come any other way than through him is coming as a thief and a robber. That's what it means in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. When you put your faith in Jesus, then God cloaks you with the garments of Jesus. He covers you with the righteousness of Jesus. And the garments of his righteousness are never, never Never the target of the wrath of God. That's why those who are surrendered to Jesus have incomprehensible peace. That's why they have inexpressible joy. That's why they have irrepressible hope. Because when you get right down to the bottom of the well, no matter what eventually happens to you in this life, you are saved from the wrath that is to come. The one who flees to Jesus has the promise of Romans 8 and 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, the Bible says that on that awesome, terrible day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the unbeliever will scream to the mountains to fall upon him and to the hills to hide him. They will be looking for refuge from nature itself, saying, cover me, give me a shield. But those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus will be rejoicing. They'll be dancing and singing, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. And that's because there's only one shield that can protect anyone from the wrath that is to come. And it's the covering of the righteousness of Jesus. The predicament of the society is that wrath is pronounced. The peril of the sinner is that he cannot save himself. The provided solution is that God sent Jesus, the Savior of the world. So I ask you today, are you saved? In, in the ultimate sense of the word, are you saved? When God's wrath begins to fall, will you be sheltered and shielded from it? Will you escape his judgment? Are you saved? The answer to that question is the most important one you will ever know. God provided a Savior, Jesus. 
And Hebrews 2, verse 3 asks the sobering question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Most people who will be lost won't be lost because they actively chose to resist God. They will be lost because they just simply neglected their salvation. Bow together with me, please. In this congregation, as far as I know, everyone is saved, surrendered to Jesus. But it's possible that I'm speaking to someone that you've not done that yet. You've not surrendered your life to Jesus. And I would not want to miss the opportunity to extend an invitation to you to surrender to Jesus as your Savior. It's very simple. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a hard task. And today, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or stand or come forward. It's simply a decision in your mind and your heart that says, I'm turning away from following my plan, and I'm going to turn toward Jesus. I'm going to surrender my will to his will. The moment you do that, that's what repentance is. You turn around. You go in the opposite direction from the one you were going. And at that moment, when you say to Jesus, I surrender to you, at that moment, born again, you are saved. Maybe you'll want to pray a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, I come to you now, confessing that I am not saved, but I want to be. So I ask you to forgive my sin. Come into my heart. Cleanse me from the inside out. Transform my life. From this day forward, I'll not walk away from you, ignoring you, but I'll walk in agreement with you. I'll walk submitted to you, surrendered to you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help me. I know that I can't do this by myself, so help me. And I'll live for you. Amen.